the laborer who is both noble and savage. While Saturn as whiteness is a utopia, Saturn is also a dystopia. As we have seen, in Roman times, Saturn was a king, even if he was an exiled king of a long-gone and timeless age. When feudalism became the dominant agricultural model in Europe in the Middle Ages, Saturn's image changed from that of the old king to that of the old peasant. As the condition of the agricultural class worsened, Saturn's image, once linked to the rich underworld that provided the surface world with abundance, became associated with ill fortune, miserliness, exile, and poverty. As Raymond Kilbansky writes in Saturn and Melancholy, Studies in the History of Natural Philosophy, Religion, and Art, it is true that the other Greek gods, too, nearly all appear under a dual aspect, in the sense that they both chastise and bless, destroy and aid. But in none of them is this dual aspect so real and fundamental as Kronos, Saturn. His nature is a dual one, not only with regard to his effect on the outer world, but with regard to his own, as it were, personal destiny. And this dualism is so sharply marked that Kronos might fairly be described as god of opposites. Abu Mashar, archiving the cross-cultural and diverse associations that the astrological Saturn had accumulated by the Middle Ages, writes that Saturn rules over both owners of land as well as low-born people. Saturn's associations, as Kilbansky says, are oxymoronic. Saturn represents both wealth and poverty, both citizenship and disenfranchisement. Saturnalia, the celebration of chance, was also a celebration of the relationship between chaos and organization. While Jupiter was seen as the organizing principle of civilization, Saturn was the organizing principle of nature that disrupted hierarchical powers and the social strata of society. Because nature mandates that all things die so that life can be regenerated, Saturn is a hungry god who demands sacrifice. Saturn is death. Death fertilizes the fields, but death is always the crops that fail. Death is regenerative, but death is also a final ending. Death is sometimes the wealthy broker from the underworld, and at other times, death comes in the form of the ragged and diseased peasant. The characterization of Saturn is also the characterization of death. Regardless of how death is characterized, it always shows up outside of life. It always exists outside of the institutions that seek to regulate and control life. Saturn is often pitted against Jupiter because Saturn, as death, disrupts political society. In the Roman Saturnalia, slaves were served by their masters and children were given gifts. The festival of Saturn, like the golden age it represented, was a reversal of society's power relations because slaves and children were not citizens nor part of the political realms governing life, they represented death. As Al-Wahid would later write, one becomes a slave in situations 
where one would have otherwise died. The slave as political outsider and death were celebrated during Saturnalia as po potential agents of chaos that could disturb the power relations of the day. Through death, the distribution of wealth and debt are overturned along with the land. The political outsider, likewise, seeks to disrupt the current distribution of natural resources. Death, who used to be a king, became poorer during feudalism. The Grim Reaper, still agricultural as he carries a scythe, is starved down to the bones and wears a tattered cloak. Rather than being the king of a realm, the Grim Reaper is a drifter, without a sense of belonging. Saturn as death became desolate. Likewise, the devil, a figure that consolidated a myriad of smaller demons and monsters, became a popular symbol within the intelligentsia during industrialization. The pagan celebrations of death as a regeneration principle came to be seen as anti-progressive, irrational, and evil. As a miser, Saturn's condition was directly affected by the condition of the working class of the feudal era. What reformed feudalism in Europe was a combination of industrialization and colonization. As Europe's empires widened and wealth flowed through, the tendency to define the political outsider through Saturnian terms never went away. There are remarkable similarities between how the Romans saw Saturn and how humanist thinkers described the noble savage in the 17th century. The noble savage was almost always described as being poor, primitive, and naive. Poorness for the humanists typically meant someone who was uneducated but also closer to nature. Primitiveness referred to a person who seemed to come from an earlier and more romantic time. Naivete related to an innocence regarding the politics of the day. Like Saturn, the noble savage implied the disruption of social order. Alexander Pope's Essay on Man, which contains a passage describing the indigenous American, shares remarkable similarities to Tibullus's account of the mythological Roman age. The Golden Age. Lo, the poor Indian, whose untutored mind sees God in clouds, or hears him in the wind, his soul proud, science never taught to stray, far as the solar walk or Milky Way, yet simple nature to his hope has given, Behind the cloud-topped hill, a humbler heaven, some safer world in depth of wood embraced, some happier island in the watery waste, where slaves once more their native land behold, no fiends torment, no Christians thirst for gold. To be contents his natural desire, he asks no angel's wing, no seraph's fire, but thinks, admitted to that equal sky, his faithful dog shall bear him company. Pope's essay on the noble savage mirrors Tibullus's poems about the Golden Age. If Saturn as the Golden Age is the natural state of the uncultivated land, then Saturn as the noble savage 
is one who is untutored in power. If Saturn as the Golden Age is a time of agricultural utopia, then Saturn as the Noble Savage is of a safer world, happier island, and simple nature. If Saturn as the Golden Age is the time that existed before political power, then Saturn as the Noble Savage lives under an equal sky. Saturn is dialectically opposed to power. Thus, the image of the noble savage is also the image of someone who is inherently unable to achieve any political power. As William Vance put it, Indians and fawns and Arcadian shepherds were all essentially of the same breed, sharing the animal life of nature. Indigenous people represented a mythological Arcadia to European settlers. Whiteness is also the ability to control and shape race. Racialized depictions of simple agrarian existence were also featured within American and German propaganda. For Hitler, the perfect Aryan farmer handled black soil, was hypermasculine and had dark skin bronzed by the sun. In contrast, the Nazis depicted ethnic minorities within Europe as lighter-skinned and physically weakened due to city life. After World War II, a utopianism arose in the United States that was surprisingly similar to the utopianism of America's defeated Nazi rival. This American utopianism emerged from the counterculture of the 1960s. Young and white, self-styled bohemians living in prosperous suburban sprawls curated catalogs of books and clothing that represented a long-lost American masculinity. The whole Earth catalog, which heavily influenced the counterculture of the 1960s, described the cowboy nomad, an idealized figure that existed within American utopia. In this passage, the frontier days were land-owning, putting down roots, self-sufficient farmer stability, the cowboy was living in another lifestyle, sacrificing comfort for freedom and stability. In contrast, the catalog describes contemporary society like this. Society today is ambiguous. Laws enforce static living patterns with voter residency law. Drivers license state jurisdiction. States' rights keep you in their place. In a civilization designed for mobility. These passages compare land onen with being kept in your place, self-sufficient farmer stability with static living patterns, and voter residency law, and freedom with mobility. In other words, like the Roman poets evoking a lo lost golden age or Nazi propagandists, romanticizing the ubermensch who obeys the land rather than the cosmopolitan world order. The whole Earth catalog rejected a political sense of power in exchange for an agrarian one. The catalog encouraged readers to read Jack Kerouac, wear moccasins, and sexually liberate themselves. While the countercultural hippies of the 1960s saw themselves opposed to the asphalt culture of the suburbs, they actually extended whiteness outward. 
The small clusters of farming collectives that sprang up across the United States displaced indigenous communities and replicated patriarchal gender norms. If Saturn is connected with agrarian freedom, then agrarian freedom is not just available only to white people. It is also an appropriated image of the racial outsider that the white citizen can put on and take off at will. White utopianists don't just reproduce whiteness, they also reproduce whiteness that controls and reproduces indigeneity. Whiteness is not a racial category, but the evidence of power. The self-styled cowboy nomads that lived out their frontier fantasies also wore moccasins and feathers. The nomad component of cowboy nomad comes from hippie appropriations of items associated with indigenous Americans, such as moccasins and indigenous prints. By acting out stylizations of both the cowboy and the indigenous American, cowboy nomads reproduce the frontier as the site of genocide. The aesthetic opposition between the cowboy and the Indian is an aesthetic of death. American counterculturalists from the 1960s styled themselves with genocide as fashion. The theatrical performance of genocide within the United States did not begin in the 1960s. Rather, the cowboy nomad counterculture was an extension of older traditions of what Philip J. Deloria calls playing Indian. Playing Indian is a tradition that historically has heightened whenever the United States seeks to differentiate itself from Europe. Settlers create an original identity and differentiate themselves from their homelands by dressing up and playing Indian. Jody Bird says, playing Indian is a core process through which U.S. non-native national identities form. Michael Kamen writes that the history of Native Americans only became useful when cultural resistance to Europe began to be important. Real Indians had largely disappeared by then from the mainstream view so their legends could be approvingly used for aesthetic and symbolic motifs. The Boston Tea Party, that mythological origin story of the American settler identity, is just one example of colonialists playing Indian to express economic dissatisfaction. Settler colonialists often put feathers in their hair, painted their faces, and ran around whooping and howling when they rallied for their economic interests. White American national identity emerged from indigeneity as fashion. Even the bourgeoisie would wear working-class costumes with indigenous embellishments to express their support of independent American nationality. America was also called Colombia. In the early days of the American empire, Colombia was represented as an Indian princess through fashions of the indigenous people of the United States, wearing feathers, often nude or partially nude, and associated with animals like parrots and alligators. She was frequently seen holding a cornucopia, symbolizing the land abundance of the Americas. Her image as an American indigenous woman symbolized for the early American colonists 
both a break from British tradition and the wildness or availability of the new land. Later, Columbia became white. While she was still usually seen partially nude, she often wore garments made of the new American flag draped over a classically shaped figure. Her dress no longer resembled that of the indigenous Americans or that of the American settler colonialists. Instead, Columbia wore garments that referenced classically Roman garments. In an 1872 painting by John Gast titled American Progress, Columbia is seen floating in the air and wearing a Roman toga while guiding covered wagons and steam engine trains westward. Columbia was more than a manifestation of destiny. She, as a representation of the United States, emerges from the appropriation of indigeneity and becomes neoclassical, while remaining partially nude to assert her separation from Europe. Not only did settlers put on indigenous costumes to express nationalism, they also saw themselves as the inheritors of indigenous culture. The Tammany Society of New York, named after the Lenape leader, saw their members as the inheritors of a kind of indigenous nobility. This supposed indigenous nobility helped Tammany society members justify their positions as an urban political elite. Tammany's death was seen as a metaphor for the disappearance of the indigenous peoples. Tammany, as a dead king, was appropriated so white settlers could frame themselves as the new kings of a new world. Deloria writes that the May Day dance around the Maypole was a European tradition that celebrated the death of the old king and the succession of a new one. When settlers danced around the Maypole on American soil, they decorated the pole with wild flowers gathered from the adjacent woods, circled around it to perform the Indian war dance, and copied many other customs which they had seen exhibited by the children of the forest. This ritual, which signified the end of one cycle and the beginning of a new one, was also a celebration of the destruction of the old cycle and the dawning of another era in which successor Americans would enjoy the new world. Deloria writes that the Tammany Society appropriated the interior aboriginal identity of the Indian, fused to a Greco-Roman history, and saw indigenous people as simply pre-dead Indians who, upon dying, would become historical, locked in a grand narrative of inevitable American progress. The cultural appropriation of indigeneity by settlers would continue and heighten at certain moments when settlers sought to contrast America with Europe. During the World War era, amid anxieties that American boys were being raised by the asphalt culture of the cities, the Boy Scouts gave white boys the opportunity to create their own tribes, choose their own chiefs, and earn their own badges. In the 1990s, the Grateful Dead, whose name suggests that dead people are grateful, would perform to crowds wearing paint, buckskin, even feathers adorned with chicory coffee, hummus and pita bread, skulls, bears, and roses, and the smell of patchouli oil on skin.
While the sun is linked with a future multicultural utopia, where all races participate freely in the public spectacle of finance, and the moon depicts a market where race is consumed, Saturn is not about race. Rather, Saturn stands outside of race. Jody Bird frames indigeneity in parallax with race, writing that while multicultural settler colonial nations have often tried to integrate indigeneity into the empire by conflating it with race, indigeneity is not race, and indigenous sovereignty is not compatible with a multicultural empire. She writes that transforming American Indians into a minority within a country of minorities is the fate accompli of the colonial project that disappears sovereignty, land rights, and self-governance, and is a component of the assimilation project. In Transits of Empire, Indigenous Critiques of Colonialism, Bird calls the paradigmatic Indian tribe a ghost in the constituting machine of empire that exists as a parallel to the foreign nation. She writes that the American empire facilitates the colonialist administration of foreign nations and Indian tribes alike, and that racialization and colonialization should thus be understood as concomitant global systems that secure white dominance through time, property, and notions of self. Race is a theater controlled and scripted by white power. In the race theater of the moon, behaviors that came from white people, cannibalism, murder, corruption, were portrayed as originating from racial others. For Saturn, indigeneity is portrayed as a race that settler can, settlers can reimagine their own identities through. America tries to integrate indigenous nations into empire by describing them through the language of race. As a ghost in the constituting machine of empire, indigenous people are often described through the aesthetics of death. When settlers integrate indigenous people into the empire through race, we are also imagining indigeneity through the aesthetics of death, because indigeneity as a death aesthetic was foundational to the white American identity. American liberal culture tries to bury indigenous nations by memorializing them. However, indigenous people and nations are not historical, but exist in the present and deal with contemporary issues. Gerald Weisner calls the settler appropriation of indigeneity a simulation that is also an absence of the tribal real. These stimulations fit the indigenous into the melancholy of dominance and arise from death. Visner opposes these simulations with a term he coined, survivance. Of survivance, Visner writes, the conventions of survivance create a sense of native presence over nullity and victory. Survivance is an active presence. It is not absence, deracination, or ethnographic oblivion. And survivable is the contuance of narratives, not a mere reaction, however pertinent. Survivance stories are renunciations of dominance, 
the unbearable sentiments of tragedy and the legacy of victory. Of indigenous stories and simulated Indians, Visner writes, shadow words and nicknames are survivance stories that seem to have an unstated presence in narratives. The reader hears the shadow stories. Saturn as revolutionary in late capitalism. When the Spanish conquistador Hernán Cortés came to rob the Aztec empire of all its gold, the story goes, he sat down with the king Moctezuma and played a game. The stakes of the game were high. Cortés was playing for gold and he cheated. Moctezuma knew he was being cheated. Still, in all historical accounts of the event, each time Cortés won, however unfairly, Moctezuma dutifully paid up. Gold piled up on Cortez's side of the table until Moctezuma lost all he had. You see, while Cortez may have been playing for gold, Moctezuma never was. The gamble for him was deeply connected to fate. As the story goes, if God did not wish for Moctezuma to keep his empire, then he could not have given it away in a game of dice. Gambling is an intrinsic part of Saturn worship. Saturn rules nature, and farming is a human bet against nature. Abundance and scarcity are ruled by physical properties described by fortune. Under late capitalism, gambling is a part of the economy itself. To participate in the economy is also to cast your dice in the stocks and bonds market, hedging a bet with the market. When you bet on the market, you take on risk. In other words, you bet on futures, on time itself. In popular American imagination, the stock market is dreamed of as an equalizer, an imaginary realm in which anyone can get rich quick if they are savvy and lucky enough. Every American can have a stake in corporate health if they invest in the stock market. The financial market acts like the dice games of the Romans. It is a ritualistic game that supposedly can turn the slave into a master and the master into a slave. American ideals about the equal and common man rely on the financial sector to provide a liberalizing, liberalizing values. For the globally influential political economist Friedrich Hayek, liberty could only be achieved through a free market. Bets against Saturn were also bets against nature. The dice games played by Romans were a symbol for the precarity of life in the face of certain death. In contrast, our stock markets are an effort to control nature and minimize the risk of being subject to Saturn's whims. We have stopped betting on nature and have industrialized the farms. Saturn, however, happens to be a more wrathful god and one whose consequences become more and more dire the more they are delayed. By refusing to gamble with the agricultural god and seeking to pathologize him as that which needs to be controlled, we have only postponed payment for our ever-increasing gamble with nature. Late capitalism is the end of capitalism due to natural forces. Industrialization, or creation of a risk-minimized, developed world, only exports the consequences of a controlled environment elsewhere. Heavy minerals are mined in the third world, 
Natural resources are sold and swallowed, and pollution is exported. Climate change will devastate the third and developing world before it reaches the wealth-hoarding nations. Saturn's sickle appears in Karl Marx's dreams of a classless society. Marx imagines that a revolution can reorganize and regenerate society, returning it to an original state. This dream of revolution has a traditional basis because the Saturnalia was always the ritual that yearned for classlessness. In communism, Saturn becomes revolution. Following the Saturnalia and the diverse forms of governments that Marx's revolution has inspired, the revolution becomes a symbol or ritual that is imagined in order to meet psychological needs created by political society. The ritual of revolution, like the ritual of Saturnalia, imagines death as fruitful, seeks to disrupt the corrupt status quo, and allies itself with political outsiders. The wish for revolution is also the yearning for a pre-political and original state. The tabula rasa that Fanon described as a necessary stage of decolonization. In her book, Shock Doctrine, Naomi Klein finds that the concept of a revolution that remakes the world has been appropriated by neoliberals. The dream of a proletariat that rises up and destroys all social institutions to create a blank state, a blank slate for another reality, although it has leftist origins, has been used by right-leaning economists to destroy formerly de democratic and leftist governments. Let's go back to the story about Cortez. The thing is, like all stories, it gives an overly simplistic and unexamined view of what really happened. It is inconceivable that Moctezuma, a great king of a great empire, who must have had to plan his affairs strategically in order to keep his empire. A king who was planning reforms that would unify peoples that the Aztec Empire had formerly alienated against the colonizers would forsake all he had in a game of dice. To consider the possibility that he would stinks of colonial assumptions that indigenous people are overly naive and superstitious. What really happened in the Aztec Empire is a story familiar to all of us in the 20th century, 21st. Cortes, knowing that the large size of the Aztec Empire had alienated several small groups around the region, exploited frustrations with the current regime to destabilize the region. To support his actions, Cortes described the Aztecs to his European backers as tyrannical and given to human sacrifice. He used these extreme descriptions to arm and ally fringe groups, stage a coup, and use the resulting confusion to mine gold from the region and enslave the people. In the 1970s, the CIA would stage multiple military coups in Latin America and the Pacific Islands before installing neoliberal leaders, who would then open the region to foreign interests. While these areas were formerly democratic and left-leaning, with stable local economies, the United States would opportunistically install dictators friendly to corporate interests when political or natural disasters occurred. 
The assets of Brazil, Chile, Argentina, Sri Lanka, and Indonesia were stolen from the people through fabricated revolutions. The way the CIA acted was eerily similar to Cortez, painting a current power regime as totalitarian or extreme before a staging coup, privatizing natural resources and selling the resources to Western powers. After these revolutions, periods of terror occurred during which these loyal, those loyal to the old regime would have to be shocked, tortured, and erased. When we think of revolution today, it is almost impossible to imagine one that is not bloody. We often think of totalitarian regimes in which the majority of the populace is brainwashed or complicit. We romanticize the small fringe groups that takes the matter of insurrection into its own hands, wreaks havoc, and destroys all social institutions. Only afterward can society begin again with a fresh slate. We see this revolutionary template in almost every cinematic example of revolution, including The Matrix, V for Vendetta, and the Divergent series. Almost all of our cinematic examples of sudden revolution resemble not the populist and democratic leftist movements of anti-imperialism, but the colonial and neoliberal coups that rob third world countries of their natural resources. Often, these revolutions are what Deloria calls liminal states. It is almost impossible to imagine the day after revolution. Deloria calls liminality a frozen moment of unpredictable potential in the midst of a process of change. Michael Bristol relates liminality to Saturnalia, writing that liminality is the experience of the social other, and that it provokes an alibi and an excuse creating a space for the fulfillment of wishes that ordinarily cannot be satisfied, or, in other words, utopia. Saturnalia was a space in which Roman masters dressed as slaves. In the American liminal space, indigeneity is worn as costume to create a settler's utopia, where wishes that cannot be ordinarily satisfied can be satisfied. A space where anyone can do anything. The liminal space is not revolution. Revolution is not an in-between stage where anyone can do anything. Revolution is not an event. Revolutions must be sustainable. Arendt writes that, no doubt human life placed on the earth is surrounded by automatic processes, but the natural processes of the earth, which in turn are surrounded by cosmic processes, and we ourselves are driven by similar forces insofar as we too are part of an organic nature. Our political life, moreover, despite its being the realm of action, also takes place in the midst of processes which we call historical, and which tend to become as automatic as natural or cosmic processes, although they were started by men. The truth is that automatism is inherent, in all processes, no matter what their origin may be, which is why no single act and no single event can ever, once and for all, deliver and save a man or a nation or mankind. Otter Lord simply says, revolution is not a one-time event. 
We believe that revolutions must be bloody to be effective because the current neoliberal system relies on violence to maintain itself. The type of revolution that Arendt and Lord spoke out against, the kind that is always a bloody one-time event that erases societies and tries to create a blank slate, is happening all of the time. In 1993, some of the world's most influential economists met, by invitation only, in Washington, D.C. In their meeting, they decided that, after seeing the effects of the American experiments in Latin America and the Pacific Islands, it is logical to engineer a crisis with the goal of pursuing economic revolution. John Williamson, the host of this meeting, said, one will have to ask whether it could conceivably make sense to think of deliberately provoking a crisis so as to remove the political logjam to reform. As a result of this meeting, an oil-hungry Bush administration would, in fact, deliberately provoke crisis after crisis in the Middle East. Joseph Nye found that protest was central to American soft power. The United States culturally influences its colonies by defining and depicting protest and freedom. It then redefines its military actions as liberty. The United States describes itself as having a monopoly on liberty. However, what America actually holds a monopoly over is violence. Instead of using revolution as a media symbol or ritual, always bloody, destructive, necessary, and final, Lord asks us to sustain revolution. Saturn's questions from the golden age to modern utopia to present day climate change are always questions of sustainability. What Lord teaches us is that revolution is not something that happens and then is over. Rather, revolution must be sustained, protected, and cultivated. Sustainability is the realization that authority isn't something that disciplines us from above, but is what's given to us from the land. It is the realization that Saturn isn't what gives us authority over others, but what we give authority to, in an attempt to distribute the resources we have for survival. The central question in matters of sustainability is the distinction between what we can live with and what we can live without. The thing about revolution is that if the issues being presented are truly in the interests of the population and not a small elite, then there is no need for a single shocking bloody event in which ordinary civilians must be killed. Violence is a weapon of the few against the many. When the many are in solidarity, a simple reprioritization of what we collectively value is enough. A boycott of any corporation for a single day or week is enough to destroy it, if enough people get behind it. In fact, the boycott was the strongest weapon of those in support of the Freedom Charter in South Africa in the 1980s. Other tools that the many have against the few are community care, to resist privatized health services, farming, to resist corporate land ownership, and the strike which takes away capitalism's ability to exploit our production. In a status quo that needs violence to sustain itself, saying no to violence is often enough to disrupt. 
When the many of the world, the colonized, the indigenous, the subjugated, move in alignment, the few will confront this peaceful movement with violence. When protesters gather without enacting violence, the police will stage violence and brutalize protesters first, while the media describes the protesters itself, themselves as violent. It is important to understand that in a militarized state, the state holds a monopoly on violence. Violence is how the few discipline the many. Violence within revolution always comes from those in power. But it goes deeper. Neoliberal economic revolution seeks to destroy social bonds because it, like the early utopianists of the Americas or the Third Reich, declares that an original state truly exists if only we can recreate, if we can create enough destruction to unearth it. Neoliberal revolution sees revolutionary elements as something that comes from outside. The neoliberal revolution is only credible when idealized social relations of a make-believe utopia that exists before time itself takes priority over the actual messy social bonds that support our daily lives. There is no utopia but our relationships. A sustainable revolution, then, must value existing relationships instead of attempting to remake the world anew. A sustainable revolution must learn to live with the world we have. A sustainable revolution does not come from outside, but from the protection and survivance of indigeneity. Colonization is often depicted as clean, as reform, and as liberating. Decolonization is often framed as destructive and as violent. However, Jody Bird writes that decolonization is not destructive. Rather, it is a grieving process that also restores life. Rather than framing justice for American Indians as the fourth horseman accompanying the apocalyptic plague, pestilence, and famine, it is time to imagine indigenous decolonization as a process that restores life and allows settler, arrivant, and native to apprehend and grieve together the violences of U.S. empire. Rather than seeing decolonization through the Western biblical imagery of the Book of Revelations, we must expose the violence of colonialism as what it is. Bird writes that the story of the New World is horror, the story of America is a crime. When Fanon wrote about the necessity of violence and revolution, asking revolutionaries whether they plan to revolt using guns made by capitalist arms manufacturers, he was not describing violence as something that emerges from the colonized in protest. He was advocating for a revolution that survives the violence that comes from the colonizers. In other words, revolution is not an event. Revolution lives. It is the remaking of culture. Culture is the cultivation of the land. Hawaiian nationalist Hanani K. Trask says culture is the center of politics and that only Hawaiian culture comes from Hawaii. Every other culture comes from someplace else. Speaking in support of Hawaiian sovereignty, Trask says, we did not come from Adam and Eve or China or Japan or Korea or the Philippines, 
and we will not be saved by the Christ child from Bethlehem. We came from this earth. We grew right out of this earth, and our survival depends, especially today, on understanding and connecting to this land of our ancestors. Revolution grieves. Revolution restores life. There is no revolution without indigenous sovereignty. Revolution is not death, but life that survives the death distributed by the colonizers.